0: Welcome to Bike Talk, streaming in Southern California at KPFK, Western Massachusetts at Valley Free Radio, WMBR in Cambridge, and worldwide at Biketalk.org. First, Kathy Tuttle and Paul Buchanan with Bike Loud of Portland, Oregon, on San Balto's famous elementary school bike bus. This is Kathy
1: Tuttle from Bike Loud, and I'm back here in the back of the bike bus sweeping. And I love being here because I relate to these kids. It's the kids that were me when I was little, still learning to bike, getting to school a little bit late, feeling a little wobbly going down the hills. And being in the back really makes me feel useful, and it's a way to really connect with the people that my heart goes out to. Up in the front, 100 kids ahead of us is those kids that are self-assured and right in the middle of things and listening to the music. But there's the kids in the back that want to be there, or maybe they're too shy and they'll never be there, but they're my people. They're your people. Yeah. Those kids in the back. Looking around me to see if there are any latecomers because they're oh, yeah. our... I was the kid whose mom sent them out at the last minute to get on the school bus and I was always late. Same thing with the bike bus.
0: Some of the things I'm seeing, there was a little kid crying because it was too cold. Yeah. He was in shorts.
1: Fingers are hurting because they might not have gloves, although Sam has been making gloves that they bike bus on them for kids and also kids with the gloves on. This is a new season. It's getting used to using your brakes and biking with bike gloves. Isn't this amazing at the corner? I mean, here we have 50 kids and we're just about to go across a busy street. We have some people from Bike Cloud who are corking that street, making sure it's safe for kids to get across so we don't have to worry.
0: Yeah, it is great. And it's interesting how this particular ride has caught fire the way it has. What do you think?
1: I lay that all on the footsteps of Sam Balto, Coach Balto. He's a PE teacher. He's passionate about this. He's doing this in his spare time and just making it work. And he's one of those PE teachers that has a great rapport with every student in the school and has that PE teacher's enthusiasm of, let's do this, kids. And he also has that PE teacher's experience of figuring out how to motivate a big group of people. I mean, look at this big group waiting for us here. We came with 50 people, 50 kids and their caregivers, and there's another 50 just showing up.
0: Yeah, it's like a feeder ride.
1: Yeah, but a huge feeder ride.
0: It's this amazing feeling of power, really.
1: Yeah, it's owning the road. And you'll see along the route, too, you'll see a lot of neighbors, elderly people coming out with their phones to take a picture because they know the bike bus is coming. You'll see people on their porches sometimes with pots and pans banging on them going, go bike bus. I mean, it's really exciting to the people who live here. For the most part, people are really positive. There's an occasional entitled driveway that comes through or a confused driver that comes through, which is why I'm here. One of the reasons I'm here, but it's more something that's so exciting for the whole neighborhood. And here we go, taking off with a hundred kids. Look at that, look at that mass of people. And they're so excited. The kids could not be more excited. I mean, look at those smiles.
0: Do you have anybody just uncontrollably weeping at the sight of it?
1: I did my first time I was here. That's why I come again and again. I schlep up here pretty far away. I live downtown in Portland and it cheers me up every week.
0: I Like the poncho kids.
1: Uh, there's a late one right there, so we're going to wait for them because they need support too. Okay, we can go now.
0: So when I say it's catching fire, I mean, I see people referring to it and starting their own bike buses all across the country now.
1: Well, it's a catchy name, Bike Bus. One thing we have to realize about this neighborhood is it's a pretty privileged neighborhood. It's a place where parents all have bikes, or not all, but many of them do. Many of them are already pretty skilled at commuting by bike. They can all afford kid all-weather gear, and they can afford to buy bikes for their kids. It's something that we'd like to replicate in all neighborhoods, but we need some serious city support to make that happen. That's something that we're looking at with Bike Loud, how we can actually get the city to step up and help because we need that too. With what? Well, not every school has a coach fall code. We need staff to support this kind of work. We need help teaching little kids how to bike. I worked on safe routes to school in low-income schools in Seattle, and one thing that everybody needed there was rain gear and gloves. Just ordinary things that people in more privileged neighborhoods take for granted. You need those things to make it possible to bike at any age. And that is something that, if cities are looking at real equity, they can be looking at too. Oh, here comes the scary hill, which I stay at for a long time because you'll see. There's a fair number of kids that are not quite ready to bike down the scary hill. Have you ever had a wipeout?
2: I?
0: No, not you. On the ride? Right. <laughs>
1: well, oh, I have in my past, but on the road, oh, absolutely. There have been skinned knees. Look. There's two or three kids who are walking down the hill, which is a perfectly good thing to do as you're getting used to biking. Some of them walking on the sidewalk, but there's the whole mass of 100 kids ahead of them and by next year be soaring down the hill on their own. And that's great too. So they're trying to catch up, their parents are trying to catch up because there's also more support down there and more people from Bike Loud who are corking the streets to make sure that those kids can get down safely. Oh, there's a mom with her two kids who always comes just at the tail end of things. And her kids are going, Mom, Mom, we're going to be late for the bike bus. And it looks like, oh, there's the last tail end of the group coming. And that might be a child that needs to walk down the hill. We'll see. Don't remember.
0: You ever get separated by waiting?
1: Yeah. But it's good to have another person there to help cross that last busy street.
3: Morning. Good morning. morning.
1: You got those bar mitts love our mix. Waterproof, windproof. And I took
0: a picture of your bike before I started talking to you.
1: Sign in the front?
0: Yeah, you want to read it?
1: The sign says, this machine fights climate change. And that's a
0: call to... A
1: call to everybody, but yeah, there's a climate conference that is just finishing up in Egypt, trying again to make sure that we have a habitable planet. Good morning. Uh Uh-oh, you're
0: You have noisemakers on the route.
1: Like I said, some of the neighbors come out and bang on pots, or those guys actually came out with their own maracas to cheer us on. No bike bus.
0: So Bike Lab is a really focused, targeted group.
1: Very focused. That's the whole point of it, is to make sure that the city follows its own three plans that say one in every four trips are by bike. So here we are at the school. Here we are at the school, and more than one in every four trips of the kids here are by bike. Right now, about 30% of the school population here, or maybe even more, is going by bike. So this is what we need. This is what it looks like when 30 to 40% of your school comes by bike. And it's pretty joyful and very doable.
0: So I'm with Paul Buchanan with Bike Loud, and also you have a bike bus?
4: I've been helping out with the bike bus here, and I'm actually working on a grant to get a walking school bus started for a neighborhood school in my neighborhood of Portland, which is called Portsmouth.
0: So how long have you been doing this bike bus?
4: I've actually been helping Sam since the very first one they did on Earth Day of last year.
0: Okay, that's when it started. Oh.
4: Yeah. Yeah, that was the first one he did. He did it from Earth Day until the end of the year, so like April, May, June of 21, and then he started up again pretty much the first week of the school year this year, and I've been helping out pretty much every Wednesday since then. Do you have kids? I do not, know, but I do have four nephews and a niece. But if, you know, children are the future, if we could teach, you know, 100 kids to be independent and autonomous when they're children, they'll be independent, autonomous, free-thinking and free-acting adults. You've been a bike advocate, you would say, for a while? Oh yeah, my whole life. I've been a bike advocate since I lived in Minneapolis. I moved from Minneapolis to Seattle in 2015. I was an advocate in Seattle with Seattle Neighborhood Greenways and West Seattle Bike Connections. And Minneapolis, yeah, I was on Neighborhood Association transportation chair for my Neighborhood Association.
0: Okay. And so I was going to say, if you're going to focus your efforts in one place, this is the type of thing.
4: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think the kind of reward, return on investment for this kind of time and effort is huge. Because not only is it the children, but it's also the parents, the families. It's a really kind of holistic approach for people to realize, how viable bikes are as a way to get around
0: how has it developed in this year that it's been in operation
4: it's only grown and more parents at more schools are emulating it also even bike loud i think we have three or four parents who have started their own bike buses at other schools around town yeah you've obviously seen the international response to it also has been really good and really huge so it's this coal right now that's burning and it's just going to catch fire sooner or later
0: Yeah, I was talking to Kathy, I described it as being on fire. So I think it's on fire.
4: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I really hope so. We gotta keep pouring fuel on it, that's all. Love these metaphors. Yeah, exactly. So here we are at the school and looks like Sam has
0: to go on duty. So we're not gonna get to talk to Sam, but he's well represented in many forms of media. The camera crew was just here talking to him. So I'm getting the behind the scenes with you and Kathy. But you're telling me how sam figures out how many kids were on the
4: ride yeah so sam when he gets to school he will count all the bikes that are at the rack to figure out how many kids actually rode bike and a bunch of parents mill about yeah i mean that's one of my favorite things about this bike bus is seeing all the kids who are all riding bike that are two and three feet tall and then seeing parents that are five and six feet tall riding amongst them it's really fun people don't seem like they're in a hurry to leave Never. Nah, we're in Portland. We like to take our time getting places. <laughs> Typically. It's interesting. I didn't know that that was a thing. It's just the West Coast. Nice and relaxed. Not quite island time, but almost. All right. What
0: time does school start?
4: I think they'll ring the bell at 8.45. Maybe 8.40. People are plumping up pretty quick here. There it is. <laughs> 8.40.
0: Those are volunteers Kathy Tuttle and Paul Buchanan on Sam Balto's bike bus in Portland, Oregon. Next, an audio essay from Joe Borfo on Bike Oven, a bike collective in Northeast Los Angeles, which started almost two decades ago and recently made a comeback.
2: My name is Joe Borfo. I'd like to talk about the bicycle oven. Uh, We're at 3706 North Figueroa Street in Highland Park, uh, border of Cypress Park, and uh, right near Lincoln Heights as well we are a workshop focused on uh, teaching bike mechanics we offer stand time and the use of all tools and advice from our own mechanics on how to fix and build your own bicycle Um, we've recently developed our mission statement uh, that the bike oven is a space for work and education Uh, we're We empower people with the tools and knowledge on how to build, repair, and maintain bicycle. Uh, We strive to promote cycling as a fun and safe and sustainable method of transportation in order to promote healthier and more interconnected communities. I've been a volunteer for about a year now, and I've been involved with the bike oven since its beginnings, which was around... Late 2004, Joseph was inspired by the Bicycle Kitchen, which is a successful co-op in L.A. He wanted to emulate that, so he did it out of his garage. As the bike boom in that time uh, was happening, we realized they needed a bigger space. They ended up finding the current location. Many people have held the torch, helping keeping that organization alive over the years, some people like uh, Harvey Woolen, uh, Steve Itano, Joseph um, Bray Ali himself. Throughout the years, there had been different uh, volunteers and, and people who stood up as leaders. But because there was no written down structure like the other co ops have, there began to be a, a slow disintegration of how to run things. And, Uh, various disagreements, which kind of led to people not being involved. And eventually it uh, was just one person running, and it was kind of shut down for a bit. Um, Until recently, Steve Campos had the vision to build it back up again. So uh, we cleaned out the space, and uh, his idea was for us to make it ready to use again, And uh, we had several um, fundraisers, which were very successful in um, getting us back on our feet. And over this year, we've got a lot of new volunteers to come in. We've got full hours of operation. We're on um, Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, closed on Fridays, and Saturday and Sunday we're open. Being a volunteer is very rewarding because I get a chance to meet people in the community, and show them how to work on their bicycle. And seeing them be emboldened and proud of what they've learned, it it makes me feel good. There's many volunteers involved. We are very diverse, and the amount of female energy that we have there is growing and that's something that i'm hoping to see more of at the bike oven we have been working and focusing on communicating with the other successful co-ops and they've opened their doors to communicating with us and helping us um, we're kind of building the new bylaws and creating a um, a non status and board with bylaws and that's been a slow process over the year and we're almost there. We're kind of taking similar aspects of the microwave, as well as what the bicycle kitchen does. And it's really exciting to meet people at the other co-ops and see that we're kind of like a big family uh, supporting each other. Some of the programs that we're thinking of, Steve Campos wanted to start a build a bike program, try to uh, reach out to kids in the community, to come find a bike frame and we'll teach them how to build a bike. The end product is they own it. And that's something that I'm excited about. We're also doing bike polo at Glassell Park currently. And we are also teaching kids how to play bike polo. We're working on a cargo bike building program. Steve has uh, access to welding tools. So that we've already built a cargo bike that we use to transport stuff for the oven. It's a big family at the oven. We call ourselves bakers, like the bicycle kitchen are cooks. And I'd like to encourage you to come visit the oven and bring your bicycle if you want to work on it. We also have bicycle frames and, and bikes that need a little repair that if you can choose to work on just with stand time and cost of parts, we can make that bicycle become yours. It's really empowering to learn how to work on the bicycle Also, as a volunteer, I've been learning a lot. I just started working as a bicycle mechanic. It's almost been a year. I'm kind of switching my lifestyle around, trying to ride to work every day and encouraging other people to do so. I see a new boom happening, particularly with the gas prices exploding and more awareness of climate change. I think people are gravitating to bikes. I think electric bikes are really helping people get on bikes more. One more thing I wanted to say was the way we're structured at The Bike Oven. Like I said, we're, we're building that with a board. It's gonna be a nonprofit collective. If anyone wants to help us, we need help. We have um, monthly meetings. We have a shadow program where if uh, someone wants to be involved in volunteering, you can work with us and, and uh, eventually we get to the point where you can uh, be considered a baker. So come on by and express your interests or um, just come by to um, support and uh, work on your bike. Again, I wanted to say how appreciative I am to all the bicycle collectives that have been helping us. They're, they've been coming over and, and, and volunteering and um, offering advice. Also a uh, shout out to Steve, Steve Campos, who has uh, brought the bicycle oven back to life, used his leadership to get us to this place. And now his wish is for us to, as a structured organization to run on its own and it's happening. So come celebrate with us. Uh, more events to come. We have bike rides monthly. Look at our Instagram and calendar on our website. Thanks for listening.
0: That was Joe Borfo, a volunteer with a bike oven in Los Angeles. But wherever you live, there's probably a bike collective near you, like Bike Lab in Northampton, Massachusetts. Speaking of Northampton, the Verge Northampton International Cyclocross was there last weekend. (laughs) This is Doug, and Doug makes art. Uh, it's, it's all bike art?
5: Yes. It's, the, the genesis for it was uh, I had a, a big, big crash as a Masters racer about 10 years ago. And um, to pay back the EMTs, I came up with a, uh, a collage uh, poster to sell the following year at the race. And about two weeks before the event... The race committee came to me and said, hey, Doug, could we have the original? We'll um, auction it off and see if we can add to the, the money we're going to give to the EMTs. And I started doing art a little bit more seriously. By the third year, people started asking me, what else do you do? And so uh, what you see in, the, in our booths is the result of that. I grew up in a we weren't very wealthy people we' pretty we lived in government <laughs> projects in my in my youth for Christmas and holidays uh, we would go to various museums my my mom grew up in the Bronx New York and so we'd go to the met and uh, I just kind of osmosed the experiences and I loved art I you know did a little art all the way through my youth and when uh, when I, when I I spent 40 years racing a bicycle and was able to adapt the racing experience with the art experience, and that's what you see. With the, it's all collage art, it's all cut paper with a, uh, an acrylic, clear acrylic medium that acts as a glue and uh, a surface. Does, uh, But uh, most of our work is uh, done on site with, uh, at different events. And because I have somewhat of a reputation in the, the sporting end of things, of racing a bike, people stop by that from my racing days, and we have people now, after 10 years of doing this, uh, who have purchased pieces early on and just stop by to see what's new. You want to describe some of the well, themes? Uh, our, uh, today, we're at a cyclocross event, and we have a, a piece called Remount, and uh, it's a woman in the air Coming, just remounting her bike after coming, going over an obstacle. The paper for the figure is from Hong Kong. It was a, a gift wrap. And the uh, highlighting is done in a gold leaf. So you have this flash of, of light on the, uh, the cyclist's face. Um, the rest of the piece is very uh, neutral. Uh, it's called a uh, honeysuckle Canson paper in the background. Uh, and the uh, detailing is in uh, uh, just a stark black. The bike and the, the background is black. The, the figure itself is a kind of a purple and uh, brass detailed background. The rest of the, the work kind of flows from that. Uh, we have uh, a piece that to the right of the one that I'm looking at here is uh, called Embankment, and there's, let me see, one, two, three about six layers of, of paper that form the figures. Then the sky is, is done in a kind of multicolored kind of, to me it emotes that moment uh, as you're entering the last 25% of the race and the fatigue factor is setting in. And the, the genesis for most of my work is, is something that I just happened to glimpse a moment. I'm not big on just representing bikes or just representing riders. Uh, try to transcend that a little bit, you know. For 25 years I owned two bicycle businesses, one in Amherst and one in, in uh, Northampton, and then a third up in Greenfield, which is just north of us here. And I owned one in Connecticut for a number of years as well. So I was in the business world uh, for 25 years i i say this is probably my my 12th career (laughs) being an artist
0: you're ellen noble
6: yeah i raced um cyclocross and mountain bikes professionally i've also raced road professionally for a time but uh my mainstay my main focus was on professional cyclocross racing last october i commentated on my first race so i was commentating on a live broadcast of a cyclocross world cup and then i started doing some uh, sports announcing. I began at the World Championships earlier this year in 2020. Okay.
0: What's the art of commentating? <laughs>
6: I have been told that really the big thing that you're trying to do for sports announcing is that you're sort of curating the energy at the venue. So um, obviously the racing is super exciting, but if the person who is sort of sharing that play by play isn't excited, then it's going to make the race a little bit dull. So it's always your job to find a way to make it exciting. Even if the race is all but sewn up, you have to find a way to make it super high energy and really just um, emulate that support from the crowd to the racers and vice versa.
0: And so that worked this time.
6: I think it did. Yeah, we were super treated to really, really amazing bike racing this weekend. But in the men's race where it was pretty much decided halfway through, you know, you still have to find those races within the race to really keep it exciting. And we were treated to a lot of those um, miniature battles, if you will. So pretty makes our job really easy, um, especially when you're really familiar with all of the riders.
0: What's the story of this particular race? I mean, you had this is a big important event
6: yeah this is a very very historic event so our race uh, the creator behind this race Adam Meyerson started this race uh, 31 years ago at Orchard Hill at UMass Amherst uh, and it's continued ever since about 20 years ago they moved here to Look Park and it's just kind of been a mainstay of professional cyclocross racing and um, it's the oldest cyclocross race in the country
0: so it's every year here at Look Park
6: it is for the last 20 years we've been here at Look Park And
0: some of the racers were, you had number 18 in the world, cyclocross, number 24.
6: Yeah, we have some very, very highly ranked uh, cyclocross riders here. And, you know, this year is just one year of many that we've had some of the best cyclocross racers in the world lining up uh, here in Northampton.
0: And for people who don't know cyclocross...
6: Cyclocross is sort of a hybrid sport between road cycling and mountain biking. So if you're trying to visualize the bike, it's going to look like a road bike. So it's gonna have drop handlebars, very similar geometry to a road bike, but then we're going to have slightly wider tires with a bit of a tread. Uh, and so those are gonna look a little bit more like mountain bike tires, but the sport is done on short circuits. So between six to 10 minutes in length, they're gonna race between 30 minutes to an hour. And each course will feature multiple different features, whether it's in the woods, riding up or down a big hill. And there's gonna be a few features on each course that forces a rider off uh, off their bike to dismount and run with their bike. So that's something that's really unique to the sport of cyclocross is that uh, there's a little bit of running involved.
0: Yeah, uh, and fun to watch.
6: It is. It's very fun. It's incredibly dynamic, and there's always something to watch. And I think one thing that makes cyclocross really special is whether the rider is first or last. There's always something to see, and there's just so much high energy. And the sport of cyclocross is pretty small, so it's uh, you know it's a very very passionate group of racers and spectators. So it's a it's a really really incredible discipline to be part of. And if you ever have a cyclocross race in your area, I can guarantee if you go out and watch or participate, you will have a great time. And,
0: uh it's a great wrap up but I had one more follow up which sure. is that uh, I heard that there's more women now and is that a trend in the sport or is that just today?
6: Absolutely. No, it's definitely a trend. Um, You know, the women's side of cyclocross, uh, I think like with all women's bike racing is a little bit slower. There has, we're still aiming for equality in a lot of aspects of women's cyclocross, but the women's scene is just growing and it's growing really fast. Uh, You know, a lot of people would say, I'm going to try to remain neutral, but I think a lot of people would say that the women's racing in general is even more exciting than the men's at this point. And I think that that's a bit of a testament to the fact that women's racing is starting to be support equally. Women are being paid livable wages. They're getting support from pro teams that historically only supported men. So we're starting to see that uh, push for equality really starting to pay off. Keep up the good work. Thank you. I appreciate it.
0: That was Doug Dale, who had an art tent at Northampton International Cyclocross last Sunday, and Ellen Noble, who commentated the races. Next, an audio essay by Bike Talk host in Los Angeles, Taylor Nichols.
7: All religions have a pilgrimage to the promised land. Muslims go to Mecca, Jews the Western Wall, Catholics walk the Camino de Santiago, baseball fans head to Cooperstown, and cyclists. Well, we go to Amsterdam, and going there is just part of the process to fulfill that faith. So at 63, I finally went to the Netherlands, not to peer into the darkness of a Rembrandt, marvel at the brushstrokes of a halls, or walk the red light district, which I did, but to bike the canals and roads of Holland to learn how an entire society relies on the lowly bicycle to save the planet by riding a bike and not driving a car for simple transportation. What I learned is they don't. There are plenty of cars, highways, and parking lots all over the Netherlands. The war on cars was lost. Cars won. And while there may be no C-A-R in the word win, there certainly is in the word traffic. Amsterdam has traffic. Plenty of it. But what I saw is that bicycles are an integral part of that traffic. I saw a city that has carved out space to allow and respect maybe 10 or 20% of the population to choose how they run their daily errands, shopping, taking kids to school, commuting by work, or going out on the town with friends. They all, women in heels, men in suits, children, octogenarians, coexist on two wheels with their four-wheeled foes. Actually, foes is the wrong word. There's not a bike versus car mentality in Amsterdam. People seem to understand that they are free to choose the best transportation tool for the job at hand. Sometimes that's a car or a truck or a train. But more often than not, a bicycle is perfect for the job. No reason to spend a gallon of gas to buy a gallon of milk. Some options are just more expensive than others, but they're all safe. The number one reason most people do not ride bikes in the United States is because they don't feel safe. Now, granted, European cities like Barcelona, Paris, Amsterdam were already beautiful, but what is it that made them so amazing? For a start, they were built at human scale before the car was king, just like much of New York and Boston and even Los Angeles if you follow LA Explained on Instagram. But what is it that keeps them beautiful? Unlike so many American cities, they are reverting back to that human scale, a walkable, bikeable streetscape that looks a lot like Disneyland's Main Street, car-free, but without the $159 admission fee. On vacation, most of us choose to go to car-free or car lite destinations. No one chooses to go to a strip mall or a suburb or a strode for a family getaway. I was born and raised in Michigan in the 1960s. Can you think of Motown? Not the music, but the cars. Motor oil is in my blood. Oldsmobile and Motor Wheel were our hometown employers. Before the age of 16, I lived on my bike. And after, I lived in my car. I was the youngest of three boys, so I got the hand-me-down Pontiac Tempest, 1965. It was a sweet car, actually. But at heart, I'm a cyclist. I lived in New York City for almost 10 years with a car, very stupid, but at heart, I'm a cyclist. And for the past 30 years, I've lived in Los Angeles, the car capital of the world. I own two cars, but at heart, I'm a cyclist. So after trading in my spandex for regular riding clothes and following the climate change intensified heat wave of September, 2022, I boarded a plane to take my communion and pledge my allegiance to the faith of two wheels. My pilgrimage started in Barcelona, a city that I've been going to regularly since 1993 when I did the movie Barcelona. The Olympics were held there in 92, so the city was primed for business, and the streets showed it. Cars and motorbikes were everywhere, and God, the noise was crazy. Barcelona was rated the noisiest city in Europe. But it was a very exciting city with beautiful architecture, amazing food, and just lots and lots of traffic. We thought that was just the price one paid for a busy, cosmopolitan, almost 21st century city. This trip, however, 29 years later, showed a different, quieter, calmer city. Starting with the Aerobus, which whisked me from the airport to the city center Plaza España for a cheap six euros, basically six dollars, That shamed the $70 I paid for a cab ride home from LAX on my return. This is where urban planners, which I am not, add the disclaimer and say, you know, European cities are not Los Angeles. Well, that's true. But last I checked, Los Angeles does have buses and they do run on surface streets. So they ain't that different. They just utilize bus rapid transit lanes. Paul Koretz, the longtime city council member in Los Angeles, didn't even fight for a quarter-mile bus lane through Westwood connecting UCLA to the west side of LA and the east side. My first realization of no political leadership in Los Angeles. Getting off the bus in Barcelona, the first thing I noticed was the lack of noise. It wasn't quiet per se, but it wasn't overtly loud either. The traffic was calmer, and that seemed to affect the noise level. Plaza España is still a busy, hectic crossroads. But in the intervening years, the city has allocated one lane on many of the public streets for alternate forms of transportation, mainly bicycles and scooters, but also wheelchairs. Many leaders in cities in Southern California voted to ban the scooters when they first appeared. A very short-sighted and reactionary decision, I think. It's like that story of the sailor whose um, ship is sinking. And when a helicopter comes to save him, he says, no, thanks. My God will save me. He drowned. When he got to the pearly gates, he asked St. Peter why God had let him drown. St. Peter said, God sent you a helicopter, you moron. Bicycles and scooters could very well be God's helicopter to save us from our traffic and climate problems. But we have to give them a chance. The big infrastructure change that everyone talks about in Barcelona are superblocks. Barcelona is a grid city and cars are everywhere. But a superblock is a nine city block conglomerate that impedes cut through traffic. Cars and parking are still allowed, but no one can drive straight through. Thus, these streets are calmer, quieter, cleaner, safer. And as a result, pedestrian life blossoms by taking car traffic off the streets. These superblocks have created a space for children to play and neighbors to connect. Jane Jacobs' eyes on the street. It's a game changer, much like Britain's project, 20 is Plenty, where neighborhood streets are reconfigured so car traffic cannot physically go faster than 20 kilometers an hour, about 12.5 miles per hour. A safe speed for cars and people to coexist saves lives, makes the hood safer, cleaner, quieter... Win-win. After Barcelona, we trained to Paris, the high-speed train. It was really fun. No trip to the airport, just catch the train in the middle of one city and get off in the middle of the next. As the saying goes, Paris is made for lovers. It's also made for walkers. Maybe that's why it's so good for lovers. Walking in Paris is romantic, and it's also safe. I don't know about muggings, but it's safe from traffic violence. Mayor Anne Hildago has staked her political career on bringing Paris back to the future, creating safe street spaces for Villeb, the city's bike share program, and so many other forms of alternate transportation. I didn't take a cab or an Uber once in Paris. I ate like a pig, drank like a fish, and I still lost weight. Gold's Gym ain't got nothing on Paris. But it wasn't always this way. Post-World War II, Paris rebuilt itself around the car. And it remained that way for 50 or 60 years. And like in the States, political battles over change are not easy there either. But the Parisian leaders had the backbone to implement infrastructure changes and not back down to the loud NIMBY voices. In my neighborhood, the NIMBYs who complain about the status quo, whether that be traffic, street crime, or unhoused people... Also complain about any solutions to those problems. They just like to complain. It seems to me that the leaders in Paris gave the street changes time to work. As one person says in the video Paris versus NYC on street films, you have to build for the city you want, not the city you have. There's a learning curve to change and we have to give peace a chance. That's all I'm saying. From Paris, we trained to Amsterdam. Along the way, I saw a lot of what I imagine were grass-fed cows. They were cows in grass fields. No industrial mud stockyards that are so common along the 5 Freeway in Los Angeles. Arriving in Amsterdam, we walked from the train station to our hotel. In the rain, it was so close and easy to get to. Bikes and bike parking were everywhere. Cargo bikes, electric bikes, children's bikes, and of course, The ubiquitous black Dutch bikes. Some people rode with rain gear, others even used umbrellas. But unless the rain was pouring down, people continued to go about their business riding their bikes. And also, what's great about Amsterdam is everyone speaks English. None of this, um, parlez vous anglais? As you can tell by my mastery of the French language, I'm probably not the best person to discuss the history of Amsterdam or the architecture or the art or anything else that makes Amsterdam such an amazing city. But I can discuss the bikes, and maybe the beers. Biking in Amsterdam's a pure pleasure. On busy, card filled roads, there are completely separated paths for cyclists. On streets where cars go say 20 miles an hour, there are protected bike lanes. And on small neighborhood streets in the canals, bikes and cars share the same space safely because they're both going about the same speed, eight to 15 miles an hour. Drivers understand that they're guests on these streets. There's little animosity between car drivers and bike riders, partly because many drivers are also riders and many riders are also drivers. This has created an environment that is safe, comfortable, and fun to walk and bike in. Bicycles travel at the perfect speed of observation. You see more and feel your surroundings better from atop the bike than from behind the wheel. I didn't see one traffic-related crash on this trip. No one even talked about it. Not that it never happens, but it doesn't happen very often and seldom results in the death of the pedestrian or the bike rider. Six people died while biking in Amsterdam last year, 42 in L.A. County. Now, I know that comparing statistics from one country to the next is apples to oranges, but it's pretty clear. One is more likely to die from murder in Los Angeles than by cycling in the Netherlands. While death is the ultimate statistic, an immediate benefit of creating safe streets is what it does for life on that street more people are out and about shopping, walking, having coffee or lunch, and it becomes a self-fulfilling cycle. The less cars, the more people. The more people, the less cars. Time and again, our civic leaders turn their backs on street improvements here in the U.S. because they're ignorant to the economic benefits and are scared of the bike lash. But cities like Barcelona, Paris, Amsterdam, not to mention New York, San Francisco, and even Long Beach are showing us the way if we're willing to look listen, and learn. Before returning home to Southern California, we went on to Ghent and then Bruges, where the benefits of having transportation choices were even more profound. But what really shocked me was one of the first nights back in LA, a friend of mine and I rode from West Hollywood to DTLA to see a play at the taper. Never had I been so scared riding a bike in my life. I'd been lulled into a false sense of security after enjoying the relative safety of Dutch roads. Now riding along Sunset Boulevard, which has a bike stripe, by the way, I was literally taking my life into my hands. I thought this is crazy by choosing to bike and not drive. In Los Angeles, not everyone has the option to drive. As I said earlier, I have two cars sitting in the driveway. I could have driven to the play. Oh, the play was The Search for Signs of Intelligent Life in the Universe by Jane Wagner with Cicely Strong. It was really good, by the way, but worth dying for? Uh, I'm not so sure, but I could have driven and I could have been a part of the climate change and traffic crisis. So the big takeaway from my pilgrimage to the Netherlands is that we here in America are not as free as we think. Because of obsolete road design and ignorant and feckless political leaders, we're not free to choose the best transportation option to suit our needs, a decision we encounter multiple times daily. We are forced by our governments, local, state, and federal, to pay for and drive a car that fouls the air with exhaust and noise, makes our neighborhoods dangerous places to walk, and divides our communities. My hope is more Americans will travel to cities like these and see for themselves how they're leading the way to create healthy, sustainable, and fun places to live and work. I returned home not an apostate to the belief in the power of the bike, but an apostle to spread the message that two wheels good, four wheels bad. So that's what I did on my vacation Thanks for listening. There are some great videos that can show you many of the improvements that Amsterdam, Paris, and Barcelona have added, and those can be found at streetfilms.org. Revisiting Donald Yards' Livable Streets is a great one. Paris versus New York, what it's like to bike, and Barcelona's Superblocks, Change the Grid, Change Your Neighborhood, are all great choices. Oh, um, and my takeaway from the play that night? Los Angeles, soup. Amsterdam, art.
0: That was Los Angeles Bike Talk host Taylor Nichols. Now a segment from the Cambridge, Massachusetts version of Bike Talk, hosted by Galen Mook and Laura Gray on Bike Snacks
8: last time we did friends on bikes eating dessert but i wanted to shake things up a little bit this week with a slightly different version of friends on bikes eating dessert which is that our own pq or pastry queen comes with a second name they're also known as chef j and they're going to be giving us a little feedback on best snacks to eat on your bike which we will enjoy together And how they're carried on the bike. So, Chef Jay, why don't you
3: take it away? All right. Cool. So, today I brought some sweet potato biscuits for us to share. These Mm. are one of my favorite riding snacks. I jokingly refer to them as pocket bread because they are small enough that I can fit them in the back pockets of my cycling jersey. I have a really great jersey that's got six or seven pockets. So, I just... What? It's a century jersey. It's got I, I zippers. Sigoy. Oh, okay. All right, totally looking over it. Right got that <laughs> at a tag sale a couple of years ago, but I will stash biscuits in all of the pockets and that way I can pull them out because I really like endurance rides. And one of the things that anyone who's known me for more than 10 minutes knows is I'm always hungry. And part of that is because I ride all the time everywhere. But the other part of that is that our body's glycogen stores We only have about enough energy for between an hour to an hour and a half of physical activity before we really need more fuel. So if you're going out for a casual hour, hour and a half ride, you probably don't need a snack. You want to make sure that you're fueling up before you go ride some amount of easy to digest carbohydrates, water to wash it down, carried into your bloodstream, a little bit of fat is going to keep you going, and then you're all set. But if you know you're going to be out for a couple of hours or you're going to be out all day, it's pretty important to have the option to refuel every hour, hour and a half, two hours. So we all know that we should be carrying water on our rides because we need to rehydrate, but that water is also really important, like I said, to carry that fuel into our bloodstreams. So... The other snack I brought today is actually toffee that I made earlier this week. Boy, is my dentist going to be mad at me. <laughs> I carry toffee. I'm a really big fan of Swedish fish or Sour Patch mm-hmm. Kids, but they're great because they're quick sugar. And if you are like me out doing a 70 mile casual cross ride for your birthday, mm-hmm. I'm burning a lot of calories and having something that is just pure sugar to keep me going so that that energy goes straight into my bloodstream. I've got these sweet potato biscuits. Those are going to fuel me in 20 or 30 minutes, but this sugar is going to spike my energy right away. So I really like being able to balance those two things.
8: Yeah. And it should be noted, Chef Jay is not just a nom de plume. You have a background in cooking, in baking.
3: Both, it's true. I studied as a pastry chef. I've worked as a chef and pastry chef for 15 years. And I do have a background in nutrition. I run a small business teaching one-on-one and in-home small group cooking classes. I have been teaching kids after-school cooking classes and writing some of the curriculum for that program. So I get to pass on that information to people So I promise I have not just spent a lot of time researching on the internet. (laughs) I do have actual letters that I paid a lot of money for uh, that come at the end of my name.
8: Yeah, and I think that's something that people forget. You need to continue to fuel yourself. And this was a rookie mistake I made myself when I first started riding. My first 30-mile ride, I didn't have any snacks on me. I was bonking super hard, which meant that I was so hungry I could barely keep going. Bonking is a real cycling term, not just a made-up term which means that you've waited so long to eat that it's now too late. You lose all of your energy and you can barely keep going. And refueling, you're going to take a while before you actually feel good enough to get back on the bike. So I got home from my first 30-mile ride. I didn't even go to my own house. We were cutting through Belmont. I stopped at my sister's house and I laid down on her floor. I was just like, I can't keep going. Uh, This is really, really important. So I love that you bake your own things. So you talked about the sugar from the toffee, which is super important. Long distance runners do that too. But what about the sweet potato bread?
3: Same thing in terms of the sugars, but it's a mix of simple and complex carbohydrates. So I get a little bit more fuel out of that, a little bit more time out of it. And again, it's a larger piece. I don't eat the whole thing at once. But one of the things I really love about using sweet potato is that they're really moist. And one of the perils of a lot of cycling snacks is that they're really dry. They're really unpleasant. And so... I can break off chunks of this while I'm riding. I can eat it one-handed. I can turn it into a sandwich, but I don't need two hands to eat it, and I don't feel like I've licked sandpaper when I'm done.
8: That's very true. I'll try it on big, big rides I'm doing, because I only eat a Cliff Bar if I'm actually doing more than 30 miles, because otherwise that's too many calories. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it's so small. Sometimes you just need a couple of bitefuls of something to keep going. You don't need a full meal. And I'll be eating it while I'm biking. And I'm like, oh, God, I hope I don't choke on
3: this. And I'll tell you the other thing about these is that I actually get really sick of sweet snacks. When you're out riding all day, you get palate fatigue. Actually, my riding buddy has been making a mozzarella and sun-dried tomato energy bar that she vacuum packs that has been really great. And she also has made us some salty gummies. I think Cliff makes a salted margarita gummy. And so she's been making we call them the salted cranberry bog gummies. (laughs) So they're salty and they're sour. And if you've had one and it's not salty, you know, you're real dehydrated. Mm -hmm. And so I've been really lucky to have that sort of mixed access to snacks, the time and the energy and the knowledge to do that.
8: Yeah, that's probably my biggest problem is I never have the energy and desire to want to make my own snacks. I should really be better about that. But The other thing you wanted to talk to me about today is how you carry them.
3: I told you I do a lot of distance rides. So right now, we are staring at one of my tall bikes. For those of you who haven't witnessed it, Boston has a really active bicycle chopper gang scene. We're called Skull. It's S-C-U-L dot org if you want to see pictures of all of the ridiculous things that we do but one of the really bad ideas that somebody had about 20 years ago was that we should take our freak bikes on century rides and it was supposed to be a joke it is not a joke we did three of them this year Oof. i wasn't involved in all of them but i definitely have century this tall bike twice it's a single speed i hate myself but What's really nice about it is that in between the top frame and the bottom frame, I have a basket. So in 2019, we did a century ride with a loop out to Groton to get cider donuts. And one of the folks who had joined us told us that morning that the furthest she'd ever ridden was 15 miles. Now, we're really big into encouraging folks. We always try to add some kind of bailout option, whether it's commuter rail or knowing that there's somebody around who has the day that can come pick us up if somebody bonks. If you've ever ridden out to Groton, you will know that it is a roller coaster. Our fearless navigator of the day did not quite tell us how much elevation we would be doing. But because this friend had never ridden a distance ride, she didn't really understand fueling, and all she had brought with her were hard-boiled eggs. Another one... I just made quite the face. That sounds like a hard thing to eat all day. (laughs) It does to me, too, and I like soft-boiled eggs. But we got to our second rest-slash-snack stop because on a chopper, you can't necessarily eat in flight, except that I'm always hungry. So... I have perfectly designed this basket such that I can access my snacks in flight. I have been known to put a bag of popcorn and just sit and eat popcorn while I am riding. But she was complaining 20 or 30 miles in about absolute sheer exhaustion, which, okay, sure, this is her longest bike ride to date. And then I noticed what she was eating. And I'm not exaggerating when I tell you I nearly slapped the egg out of her hand because while, yes, when you're doing endurance sports, ultra marathoners will tell you that they're encouraged to have some small amount of protein. And really, if you're doing a century, you need that because you're doing so much more. So we do need some protein, but, Your body can't do a whole lot with that protein while you're exercising, and it's really important to have access to those simple carbohydrates and to know your body because some people's bodies can handle a complex carbohydrate, something that takes multiple steps to break down, but not everybody can, and it can give you an upset stomach. So she did actually end up making it about 60 miles. We got to Groton. She did get cider donuts. We all got cider donuts. But it really just hammered home for me how important it is to have access to in-flight snacking options or to bringing those snacks with you and being able to stop.
2: Well, that was some sound advice there from PQ. How about that?
8: I also just want the audience to know that I made the same face mm-hmm. all this time later because that came out about a year ago. Wow. <sighs> um, the story about the eggs
7: oh man how can you only eat hard boil on a? oh god I might. it just
8: sounds awful <laughs> my,
7: body, my body is rejecting <laughs> oh okay well thanks so this is a little bit of uh some of the content we used to have here on bike talk which was just like practical advice yeah so thanks so this came from two wheels's new ish podcast Do you want to point people to the podcast
8: yeah it's just randonista in all of your podcast feeds that's r-a-n-d-o-n-n i-s-t-a and it's also randonista.com you can find more information there or my instagram which is also randonista that was bike talk
0: check us out at biketalk.org and get in touch support us if you like our work we post every week so check back next tuesday have a good week
7: push on a pedal push on a pedal getcha Heart started. Push on a pedal, push it
4: down and up again. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again.
0: Get on your bike,
4: sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around,
7: ride it all around. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around.
2: Bye.